The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The great generals of the Union during the Civil War were, of course, Grant and Sherman. But the third greatest Union general is a subject of debate. Perhaps Sheridan? Perhaps George Thomas, the quiet one, the slow one, always forgotten when the others uh, are being mentioned. Today we'll talk with a biographer of Thomas, one of many recent biographies to be published. Today's author, Christopher Einolf, will be discussing Old Slow Trot, George Thomas, today on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel where the world comes to talk. Haiti has been hit hard by a deadly earthquake. Destruction is everywhere. Tens of thousands are feared dead and hundreds of thousands are homeless without food, water, and basic necessities. Save the Children is on the scene, but your support is urgently needed to help us save lives. Please give as much as you can now. Call 1-800-SAVE-THE-CHILDREN or go online at savethechildren.org. You can even donate $10 right now by texting the word SAVE from your cell phone to 20222. Please give now. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a warm and sunny April afternoon in 2010 from the third floor of the Brewster Building here on the campus of East Carolina University. But as always, not speaking for the university, just for myself. The university has plenty to say for itself through its appointed spokespeople. And of course, uh, today's guest will surely speak for himself and not for any current, former, or future employer. The uh, thanks are due this week, as they are each week, to those of you who have called in or emailed in, more likely, with suggestions for guests for the show, and there have been some very good ones uh, uh, over time, uh, many of which I've tried to follow up uh, quickly, if not uh, as quickly as possible at least, and we'll be having some of them on the show in the future. In the, uh, uh, in fact, I believe that that's where uh, today's guest came from a, uh, a, a suggestion that way. And uh, so those suggestions are always welcome, as also our donations to the Civil War Talk Radio uh, book and uh, miscellaneous uh, slush fund, uh, which you can send money to at civilwartr at aol.com. Well, I apologize as I catch my breath. I've just dashed up three flights of stairs to get to the uh, 
phone a little bit late this week for those who are listening live. That would be uh, my my mom back home in Michigan and uh, perhaps a few other people. Most of you I know listen downloading it later, so it doesn't really matter when we record it. And actually, mom's probably not listening because my brother's visiting at home this week and they're out doing something fun. I hope. Um, but uh, the the lateness comes uh, from something I'll share with you that relates to the world of Civil War history. I was attending a meeting to discuss an exhibit plan uh, at an airport in North Carolina. Uh, the airport authority has designated a room for some heritage use, and uh, one of my colleagues here at East Carolina thought it would be good for the university and its history department to be involved, which I certainly agree with. But the what struck me about the meeting uh, is something that has struck me uh, sometimes when talking to folks on this show or when talking to other historians generally. Uh, one person who was there had a strong interest in the Wright brothers and has written about the Wright brothers. And certainly the Wright brothers are appropriate for a historical exhibit at an airport in North Carolina. The issue comes in in terms of attracting the general public's attention that is an exhibit that tells the public something they didn't know about the Wright brothers. It has some human interest elements that perhaps uh, uh, it has some engaging interactive elements. So it could be a very fine exhibit, but an exhibit that focuses on the minutia of the Wright brothers that presents, for example, here's a previously undiscovered photograph of Wilbur Wright. Um, that may set the blood racing for the Wright brothers aficionado but most people really are not going to cross the street to see a previously undiscovered photograph of Wilbur Wright. Uh, and that was what, what we were working with in this uh, discussion this morning, how to, let the, how to create a historical story that's interesting to, to everyone. Uh, just as on this show, uh, you who are listening, and, 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 and me, and, and uh, today's guest, and anyone who's spent uh, a chunk of their life studying the Civil War, probably cares at least a little bit about the difference between a Springfield and an Enfield or uh, which brigade uh, got the furthest at Gettysburg uh, into the stone wall or, or details of that sort. But it's important, I think, for all of us to remember that the rest of the world really doesn't care and that the Civil War is the most important chapter in America's history, not because of the difference in caliber between the, the various muskets, as, as interesting as, as you and I find that, uh, uh, but for larger reasons. And if we indulge too much in our, our passion for tactical detail, uh, we run the risk of losing the larger audience. And uh, once in a while, I think I've, I've talked to authors on this show who didn't quite understand why, why it wasn't self-sufficient to say, but no one else has studied this before. Uh, uh, that's that's not the only thing one needs to do. But enough of, of, of preaching to the uh, the choir, uh, and and in contrast to the Wright brothers, uh, which rifle caliber is, is better? Actually, is really important and interesting to everybody. I recognize that. I was just kidding with you. So we'll move on now to our show itself. Today is a discussion of a subject that does not risk falling into that category of, of who cares. Uh, it's just uh, minutia about the Civil War uh, on a number of different levels. Uh, our guest is uh, Dr. Christopher Einolf, 
Dr. Einolf, are you there? Paging Dr. Einolf. Christopher uh, Einolf. I'm trying to speak to you. Can you hear me? Oh, I can hear you now. Okay, great. There we go. Um, if if you don't mind, uh, do you go by Chris or Christopher? Or is, uh... Uh, Chris is better. Okay, Chris. And please call me Jerry. It will save hours on the show if we don't uh, take time to pronounce the last name. Uh, I have the same uh, kind of last name, so I understand. You, you know how it is. Yeah. Well, um, I'm very interested in talking uh, with you this week about your, your book, George Thomas, Virginian for the Union, uh, on a couple of levels, one of which was when I uh, got it from the library shelf, uh, read it, thought it was uh, had some very interesting things to say, and then looked up to see uh, if you'd written other Civil War books I hadn't come across. But online, I discover you're actually uh, a sociologist. Yeah, my academic training is in sociology, and, and honestly, I, I started the book before um, and did miss the work on it before I even entered a PhD program. So, so you were, how did you get interested in, in, in that, in George Thomas or the Civil War then? Oh, how did you get to I, I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, which oh, they were. probably tells you all you need to know. <laughs> and I, uh -huh. I um, you know, grew up in a, I mean, the, the capital of the Confederacy, but uh, from northern parents who moved there uh when I was very small, so really I've been on directly in the middle to be able to being able to see sort of both sides of of this debate. You know, the, the very strongly people who really str strongly stick to their Confederate heritage, and then people coming from outside who are very critical of that. And somebody right in the middle is George Thomas. Well, he was born in in Virginia, not that far from Richmond, I guess, in south southeast yeah, of Virginia. Yeah, southeast. That's probably about an hour and a half driving these days. So uh, how did you get from, just before we get into George Thomas, how did you get into sociology then? Uh, actually, the, the sociology, um, my, most of my academic publications focus on, um, or many of my academic publications focus on charitable giving, uh, volunteering, and altruism. So it's a completely different topic. Um, I am doing some historical research, and currently I'm looking at uh, U.S. atrocities or U.S. violence against non-combatants, and I'm specifically looking at the Philippine War, which is interesting because a lot of the senior leadership in the Philippine War, this 1902, are uh, people who began their careers in the Civil War. So there is quite a connection. And also the way that we treated civilians in the Philippine War drew upon Civil War precedent and the Lieber Code and so on. So, but this is uh, even now as you're doing this research, it's it's a side interest of yours, not. No, directly. it's one of my two main interests. I'd say this this is a pretty strong, this historical. It's a type of historical sociology. It's looking at how social, different social factors affect people's decisions about violence, and it just happens to be using a historical case. But its primary documents research. I mean, I'm going through newspapers and national archives and all that. So it's this is pretty strongly historical project. Now, how how does your department view that? Uh, can you I'm get very lucky. I teach in a, a conventional sociology department. Uh, I teach in the Department of Public Service, and they encourage. I think they encourage any any academic scholarship that gets published, whether it's in your technical discipline or not. So, they seem to be happy with that. Yeah, and this is at DePaul University. Yes, DePaul. Yeah, in Chicago. In, in Chicago, I I live. Uh, on Sedgwick near North Avenue for a number of years, uh, not mm. too far from the campus, right? And uh, enjoyed it very much. I recall studying for the bar exam actually uh, in, in an empty library 
desks at, at DePaul many summers ago and before I mm. became a lawyer and gave that up to go straight and become a historian. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so going back to Thomas, I mean, growing yeah. up in, in Virginia, uh, I, I went to a private Episcopal school, essentially an all-white school at that time, and uh, we heard an awful lot about the Civil War and we heard an awful lot about Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and so on. And it wasn't until, I guess, in high school, just sort of reading on my own, discovered that there was a general from Virginia who fought for the Union. Uh, nobody talked about him, at least when I was a teenager. And I got more and more interested in just, you know, what, what motivated this guy? What, how come he went for the Union when so many other Virginians went the other way? And, and the more I learned about him, the more interesting it, it got. Uh, I really wanted to read a good biography of him and didn't feel like any of the biographies out there were really that great, so I decided to write my own. Well, the the ones that existed, ones like uh, Freeman Cleves and, and others, were pretty focused on the military aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, so, and I, I like Cleves' biography. It, it was useful. I like um, uh, the more recent one. Um, I'm blanking on the name right at the moment, but there there were some okay biographies out there. But I just thought that people hadn't done as much with him uh, as could be done. And, and also, you're right, they look almost entirely on his military career and not at the questions that I thought were most interesting. Well, that really is the, the $64 question with Thomas, and, and one I guess we can uh, start with and, and have no risk of, of reaching the bottom of. The... Uh, the, the fre- frequently you read of Robert E. Lee, he had no choice but to go with his native state, and the answer to that, of course, is well, you know, he had the same choice that Thomas had. Uh, yeah, or um, Winfield Scott, for that matter. So, so tell us a bit about Thomas's childhood background. Did, did you find clues there to why Thomas made the decision, which which is the subtitle of your book, George Thomas, Virginian for the Union? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what did you find anything in his childhood? Uh, you know, he grew up in Southampton County, which um, actually had quite a debate going on about the morality of slavery. Uh, there were there's a large Quaker population in Southampton County, and there were other people who objected to slavery for religious grounds. There were a lot of free blacks living in Southampton County, uh, so he was exposed to sort of this political debate pretty early. Also, he grew up in a and a part of the state that was divided politically. There was a lot of active political debate. No one political party had one dominating view. But I think really it, it has to do with his family background. Um, there are a few of his letters that are still extant. His, his widow destroyed almost all of his correspondence. But his family actually is family of origin preserves some, and they're at the Virginia Historical Society now. Uh, there's an early letter that he wrote home from West Point where, and I'll quote it here, he says, He's repeating back some advice that his big brother had given to him earlier. And his big brother's advice was, having done what you conscientiously believe to be right, you may regret but should never be annoyed by a want of approbation on the part of others. And that really seemed to stick with him. He made his own moral decisions. He, he didn't go with you know, with his social group or with the pressure from other people. He was really an independent moral thinker. So... Now, the other thing that happened in Thomas's childhood, and, and your, your book opens with this, is Nat Turner's rebellion. Mm-hmm. What, what, how was Thomas involved in that, and what role did it play in his life? Uh, yeah, you know, I couldn't find much specifically about Thomas there. There is a 
memoir uh, or a history written in the late 1890s where the historian interviewed two of Thomas's sisters who were still living, living at the time, and they told their story. His plantation was one of the ones that Nat Turner's band uh, went through and, and attacked. His family was warned early on, so they, they were able to escape. I don't believe they ever saw Turner's men. They, they just went to uh, the, the capital and stayed there, but they, or the county courthouse, rather. But it's interesting that he should come out to be um, pro-union and later in his career so strongly pro-civil rights and, and so strongly against the Ku Klux Klan because he he was a direct participant in the worst racial violence. Uh, Turner's Rebellion really said to a lot of Southerners that you know, African Americans were dangerous, they should remain slaves, it, it wouldn't be safe to let them go free, or at least that's how they interpreted that rebellion. So one would think that that would have influenced Thomas the same way, but apparently did not. So he did come from a slaveholding family. Uh, yeah, absolutely. They had about 20 slaves. Uh, and he had a personal slave. That there's, uh, his servant, his personal servant, while he was a general during the Civil War, was, from what I can tell, a family slave. There's very, very little is said about him, and there's this very sort of indirect allusions to him. But a couple people who wrote about him said, mentioned his servant who had been with him for a long time, and uh, all evidence indicates that this was actually a slave. So he Now, this is even after emancipation, this, this uh, servant this, stayed with this him? This reference would have been, if I can remember correctly, from 1863, so I imagine the person stayed on as a, as a paid servant or mm-hmm. some sort of arrangement. Um, but it... Like I said, that I don't want to say too much about this because the historical record is very scanty, and it just there's just a couple sort of um, sort of sideways references to this person who acted as his valet, but mm-hmm. that person appears to have been black and appears to have been a slave. Well, so Thomas grows up in in an upper class, upper middle class, if not upper class, white Southern family with multiple slaves, uh, is exposed to uh, the worst slave rebellion violence the South experiences. Uh, then, But he doesn't become a, a plantation owner. Uh, uh, he goes off to join the army. What made him do that, do you think? Uh, well, he's the younger brother, so he's not scheduled to inherit the farm that's going to go to his older brother. They're going to keep the, the plantation together. Um, so he had to make a career for himself. He, he looked at law originally. He studied under the county clerk for a few months. Uh, and then the family arranged for him to, through their political connections, for him to get admission to West Point. And that's another sort of acceptable career for the, the younger son of a wealthy family. Uh, so he went off and did that and, and did well and became a career military officer. So it, it, it suited him, the military life then? Uh, apparently so. Yeah, he, he did well at, at um, West Point. He wasn't at the very top of his class, but he was in the top half. Uh, he didn't certainly didn't make it through without a single demerit the way that, that Lee did, but uh, he only had a few, and it was mainly for socializing and, and you know being a little more friendly and outgoing than, than regulations allowed. Um, he roomed with Sherman, which was sort of interesting. The two became friends and remained friends for years, uh, and then went into the military, into the artillery, and, and served continuously in, until the Civil War broke out. And so to get into the artillery, he had to have done pretty well because the, the right, right, the very top people went to the engineers, uh, and then sort of the second tier went into the artillery, uh, and he did well in the artillery. He went into the 
what was at that time um, a very exciting and technologically new adva- uh, advanced new weapon, the light or flying artillery. So uh, in the war with Mexico, he served, he was commanding a single artillery piece and served with distinction, won brevet uh, promotions for his courage and so on. So he was sort of a star within the, the artillery. And his his battery commander in, in the Mexican War was Braxton Bragg, and you mentioned Sherman was his roommate. It, your book is a reminder that all these guys knew each other, all yeah, the generals, yeah. it seemed. Uh, did yeah, he have other connections Bragg actually, I believe Bragg uh, recommended him for a promotion. Bragg had been slated to be promoted, but he had decided to go to leave the Army and go into private life. And... Uh, he put in a good word for Thomas. He said, you know, if you're going to promote somebody, you ought to promote this guy. And Thomas was later promoted into the 2nd Cavalry, which was, again, a sort of an elite unit within the pre-war army. I always wondered if Bragg regretted that later in life. He had, he had set in motion the career of the man who would defeat the Army of the Tennessee. Mm-hmm. The the um, the 2nd Cavalry was interesting. That was uh, the regiment. De- when Jefferson Davis was Secretary of War, he sent officers to that unit. And you mentioned the possibility that, that, that Davis was essentially preparing a secession regiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is there anything to that, do you think? I mean, there's just this very circumstantial evidence that the uh, the officers in that regiment, many of them ended up fighting for the Confederacy, uh, and that they were just some of the best uh, and most qualified officers in the pre-war army. But and I, I, Thomas actually believe that. Uh, but there's really no evidence for that from what I have seen in, in information, you know, biographies of Davis, other than just the the circumstance that these individuals did later go on. There's there's no record that that was his plan or his scheme. But if he was or loading it was it with, his scheme, he certainly kept it to himself. Yes. And in terms of loading it with Southern officers, then Thomas would have been one of them as a Virginian. Yeah, yeah I think most people would have expected, had there been a civil war, you know, and, and I think most people did expect it at the time the war broke out, that he would go with Virginia the way many other people did. Well, when in the Mexican War, uh, you mentioned that, that he served under Bragg, he served, uh, knew all these people. Uh, there was, he had another connection, I guess it even predates the Mexican War, uh, with, with John Schofield. Uh, oh, this is just that, are you talking about uh, when he was, Schofield was at uh, West Point? I guess like, that goes back to their West Point days. Right. Or was, was that, was that when Thomas... the Mexican War. It was early 1850s. Okay. Because Thomas, that's, Thomas went back to West Point then. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, well, tell us a, about that. Oh, well, Thomas went back as an instructor of cavalry and artillery tactics. So he was still officially serving uh, with his unit, but they would detach people to, to serve as practical instructors at West Point, which was different from the, the academic faculty. And uh, during that time, Schofield uh, got into various disciplinary trouble and was suspended, I believe, from from West Point for a year. And much later on, learned that Thomas was one of those who who voted against him in the disciplinary trial. I think he learned it when he became Secretary of War and could finally look at the record. Mm. And and that uh, and he didn't forget it. Yeah, except you know, I I again, I don't really think this is one of those stories that people like to tell. I don't think Schofield really would have known during the Civil War who it was on West Point who had voted for him or against him. I mean, perhaps he would have 
had some idea that was Thomas. I, I think the antagonism between the two really became over the Nashville campaign and Schofield's desire to. Um, I mean, if you're looking for the reason why they didn't get along, it's very easy to see that it's, it's the Nashville campaign and Franklin and Schofield's desire to promote his own career um, and the way the two sort of competed for, for public attention and, and for the, I guess, the glory that came from that victorious campaign. So in other words, I don't feel like it's necessary to go look back to his cadet days to wa- figure out why the two were uh, didn't get along. There's, there's plenty of reason for them not to get along just from their actual Civil War service. So, and, and, I mean, in Schofield's later writings, he's critical of, of Thomas, but... Very much so. But but that, you'd say, could easily be, be traced to these other incidents. Now, mm-hmm. when Thomas was a teacher at West Point, that's when Lee was the commandant. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and the two actually had a very close relationship. They, they served in Texas together. They, uh, I think one of Lee's letters, he mentions that, back to his wife, he mentions that he spent Christmas with the Thomases, and he describes what they had for dinner. Uh, there's another incident in Texas where the two of them are traveling, and they stop at a an inn. They're on these various court martial details. They stop at a, a inn or a tavern, and there's not enough rooms, and there's some women who need to stay there. So they they gallantly give up their room for the women and go and pitch their tent outside in the backyard. So the two are quite close. But then when we get to 1861 and the decision. Uh, comes where where was Thomas when the war broke out and how did he how did he come to his decision in, in terms of announcing it? Yeah, that's that's interesting. He was on furlough. He he finally got a furlough to visit home. Uh, he had been in Texas for years, and he traveled back to Southampton. His his wife went ahead to New York, where her family is from, and he was going to stop off, visit his Southampton family, and then continue on to New York. Well, uh, during the train trip, he stepped off the train during the night and uh, ended up falling from the raised train bed, fell, fell down a steep embankment, and really badly injured his back. So he managed to make it all the way to Southampton, but then spent all of December and January 1860 and 1861, or a good part of January, recuperating at his family's house. And then he went on to uh, New York State to be with his wife, uh, and this is sort of the critical period. The people who uh, debate and get excited over, uh, you know, what explains Thomas's decision, and, and was it you know, these ulterior motives, or was it some other motive? This is what people talk about. This sort of key period. So there's this during this time. At, at this point, South Carolina has seceded. It's not clear whether there's going to be a war or not. Virginia is still in the Union. Uh, he leaves his family in Southampton. Um, his sisters later on said that his intention at the time was to fight for the South if it should come to the war. Uh, I don't really know how much we can credit that story. They, they said this years later. Um, but that was at least their impression of what his intentions were. Now, his family would never forgive him for choosing to fight for the Union. Yeah, actually, his sisters never really forgave him. His brothers did. His his He communicated with his brothers later on. Um, they, uh, you know, the the I looked at the Thomas family account books, which his older brother kept, and Thomas had uh, various stock and, and other sort of financial holdings in Virginia, and his brother, his older brother John, looked after them for him, and he continued to keep records on Thomas's financial investments through the Civil War. So it looked like his brother was planning, after everything was over, to to 
you know, give those back or arrange for them to get those back. Also, Thomas had bought a slave while in Texas, a, a woman that he had bought to serve as a cook, and he left her there at his family's plantation. Uh, I assume he uh, had planned to pick her up later, uh, but she ended up staying there because of the war, and his brother recorded entries for buying shoes and clothing for her and her family. So at least the brother still maintained an interest. Yeah, and the brother, I mean, throughout the war intended to, to maintain a relationship with them, and uh, apparently they communicated after the war, they wrote, although I was unable to find any letters from that period. So just, uh, well, I do want to talk about Thomas's military career, and, and we'll do that. <laughs> yeah, we should uh, talk about that at least a little bit, right? We, we will do that. We'll, we'll take a break in a few minutes, and we'll come back and talk about that. Before we do that, though, the... Uh, 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 Tom, often if we go chronologically, we get to the memory in the post-war period and we run out of time, and I hate to do that. So let me ask mm-hmm. you now. Um, Thomas, uh, for some Southerners, uh, because he is a foil for Lee's decision, uh, because he disproves the idea that, that, that you have no choice, since he showed there was a choice, uh, uh, Thomas is not popular in the post-war South. Uh, Can you talk about, about his post-war reputation? Uh, talk about that? It, it, um, well, how, how how Thomas has been remembered uh, in the North and South over time? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. In the immediate post-war period, you know, say the first 20 or 30 years, Thomas is tremendously popular in the North uh, and not popular at all, this very controversial and disliked figure in the South. So this is up to the time of his death and then for a couple decades after. And in the North, he's really held up as the example of what, the Southern, what a Southerner should have done. And they're saying, here, look, not everybody had to secede. Here's a person who's as Southern as anybody, you know, from a respected family and a slave owner and all that, who fought for the right side, you know, the Union side. After, when this sort of pro-Union view in the North became replaced with this sort of reconciliationist view, uh, where both sides sort of, the North sort of recognized the validity of the Southern struggle or, or gave them some credit and, and it was no longer they would no longer just term it as a rebellion but as a civil war. Uh Thomas's star sort of fell. He was that was one less reason to really hold him up as a as an exemplar. Uh and then he became if if you read a lot of civil war books and, and literature from say first half of the twentieth century, even the second half, they'll talk about Thomas as a Union general, they'll talk about his, you know, Chickamauga and his various uh commands and victories and so on. They'll talk about the feud that he supposedly had with Grant and Sherman. Uh, and then somewhere they'll say, oh, by the way, he's from Virginia. And that's it. It's just sort of a footnote. So that was once the, the critical part of his historical persona, and, and now it's largely forgotten. Yeah, and in in immediately after the war, his, the, his status as a loyal Southerner was very important. Um, when people no longer viewed the, the war, I think, as strongly in terms of you know, either, either a traitor or a or a loyalist to whichever side, that became less important, and he became just another Union general. Sort of interesting, he's from Virginia, but not particularly noteworthy. Well, one other factor that would play into that, I would think, would be his, his racial attitudes, and that's something that we'll come back and talk about uh, in just a moment after, after we take a short break. Talking today with Chris Einolf, author of George Thomas, Virginian for the Union. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio.
the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. The Battle of Nashville in 1864 set the Confederacy on the path to defeat. It also changed the path of Union victorious General George Thomas. We'll find out how when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Introducing the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit thegreentalknetwork.com and tune in to help spread the green. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back. To Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Chris Einolf, author of George Thomas, Virginian for the Union. In our uh, first half of the show, first two-thirds, we talked about Thomas's pre-war career, his decision as a uh, southern white slaveholder to stay with the Union, uh, in contrast to decisions by Lee and other Virginian officers uh, to side with the Confederacy and uh, how it was that Thomas came to that decision and uh, its effect on his post-war reputation. What, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation at all, though, Chris, if it weren't for Thomas's wartime uh, success as a Union general. Uh, let me start by asking you where you think he ranks uh, mm-hmm. among, among generals. Oh, this is the question that, that Civil War people love to debate. Um, I try not to get drawn into this very much. I, I, I don't think it's really possible, actually, to rank generals because they, they faced different uh, problems and they had different commands. Um, often people will compare him with, with Grant and with Sherman, but it's really pretty hard to make a comparison. Grant commanded, uh, had so much of a longer history of independent command, and Sherman did also. Uh, uh, Thomas really only commanded completely independently at Mill Springs early in his career, which is really kind of a small battle, uh, at Chickamauga by default because everybody else ran away, and then uh, at, at Nashville and during the Nashville campaign. Uh, I think he did quite well in each of those circumstances, obviously, but uh, it's difficult to compare him with somebody like Grant or Sherman who commanded an entire theater or an entire army. Well, he was victorious in each of those three, but you're right, they are, in each case, there's there's a sort of asterisk as to uh, uh, why he is, why it's not one of the major victories of the war, how he came mm-hmm. to be part of it. Um, Mill Springs, uh, you mentioned 1862 in Kentucky, is, uh, uh, is a, a critical battle. I tell my students it's the most important battle they've never heard of. Hmm. Uh, in the Civil War. That's interesting. Why, why do you make a case for it being critical? Well, in that it unhinges the the Confederate line uh, on the Cumberland River in connection with, with uh, Henry and Donaldson. It means that the uh, Confederacy is going to give up essentially all of 
the northern tier of Tennessee without a fight. Mm-hmm. Um, it leads to the fall of Nashville. Uh, it, one can argue that, that had the Confederacy been successful there, they still would have been outflanked by, by the, the fall of the forts, Henry and Donaldson. Uh, but it breaks both ends of the, the Confederate line at, at approximately the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my argument. What's your view of it? Oh, I, I mean, I, I, I got to say, I like Thomas very much. I'm his biographer. I'm, I'm a fan, but um, I feel like Henry and Donaldson were probably much more important. It, it, it was difficult for him to advance very much farther uh, into Kentucky or even into Tennessee from where he was. That there just wasn't. There was no railroad. There's no river. There's no real supply line. So it was a nice tactical victory, and it was good news when the, the North really needed good news. But in terms of its long-range effects, I mean, Henry and Donaldson opening up those river lines, uh, in my view, that's really what forced, I think the Confederacy would have had to abandon Kentucky regardless of what had happened at at Mill Springs. Well, it does, they they do leave Bowling Green after Mill Springs, but I think, uh, I wouldn't argue at all that Henry and Donaldson are much more important. Certainly, Mm -hmm. many more troops are captured there, a whole army is captured Mm-hmm. Uh, and it does directly get access to the rivers in a way that uh, that Mill Springs doesn't. So I, I would not disagree with that. Um, now Thomas is, is successful there. He isn't. He doesn't have independent command, but partly that's his own fault. Um, his next moment, uh, one could say, is at the, the Battle of Perryville in October 1862, or rather the campaign in Perryville, in which he declines to take command of the army. Mm-hmm. Of uh, the Ohio or Army of the Cumberland, as it becomes known. Uh, what, what's your thinking about his decision there? Uh, yeah, I'm actually pretty critical of him in the book. I, I think he, um, and his stated reason that he didn't want to be, he didn't want to force uh, the the change of commanders when a, a battle was imminent. But that doesn't really hold up so much. The the change occurred when uh, the army was sort of safe and had retreated all the way. Uh, back and it was it was an opportune time really to, to change commanders, uh, so I, I'm not sure if that's why. I think it had a lot to do with Thomas's sense of honor, and this is really something that dominates his life or, or comes up again and again in his life. Um, his sense of duty, his sense of honor, his sense of you know remaining honest to his promises, which I think his his sense of honor and his fidelity to his oath as an officer really explain his unionism more than any views on slavery. But in this case, his views of on honor and his duty as an officer is he, he didn't want to be seen as scheming to replace his superior. He, he didn't want to seem to be taking over from Buell. And, and he actually, in, in my opinion, he didn't really have confidence in Buell anymore. He, I don't see how anybody could have served with that army on that retreat and really thought that Buell was on top of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Thomas was pretty critical. I mean, at, at Perryville, he, he kind of stopped paying attention to what Buell told him to do in certain ways. Uh, so I really think... It would have been better, certainly, for the the Union cause if if Thomas had agreed to take over from Buell at that point. Uh, And I think his his sense of honor, um, not wanting to be seen in a certain way, really prevented him from what would have been a better thing to do at that point. And this will come up, uh, again, it's not the only time he he declines to take command. but if if we go ahead, his most famous moment in the war uh, certainly is Chickamauga. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then our listeners know of, of Thomas as the Rock of, of Chickamauga holding his ground when the rest of the Army of the Cumberland retreats. 
is, is would, well, would you agree? Is this his finest hour? Does this show his, his um, best qualities? I, I do. I, in a way, it's his finest hour. Yeah. I, I mean, I think he did a very nice job at Nashville too. But um, you know, in in Chickamauga, he really his personal courage and his tactical skill really shone out, and he really demonstrated something that that very few people had. Um, and and I think he I think it's appropriate that that's what he's known for. Uh, it was tremendously risky for him and for his army to hold ground where he did. Um, he fought very hard with very limited resources. He was very skillful in how he deployed the the forces that he had available to him, and he exercised great personal leadership. It, witnesses said that he time and again personally led charges and ordered men forward and and took risks and showed himself to be indifferent to the bullets whizzing around them. Um, people said that if he had not been there in person, visible, there, there's no way anybody would have held held on to the field. So and his success there uh, in, a, in a losing cause, the Union is, is defeated at Chickamauga and then, then besieged in, in Chattanooga afterwards. Uh, but his success certainly spelled the end of, of, of Rosecrans' career and meant that Mm-hmm. Thomas was a, a logical contender to take over the army at that point, mm-hmm. uh, but Thomas, uh, Thomas and Grant never quite seemed to see eye to eye through the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I guess if we're talking about finest moments, of course, Thomas's army will then wins the battle at Missionary Ridge. It's hard to say how much he personally had to do with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but what about Grant and Thomas? Talk about their relationship. Yeah, I, I, I will. I, I just wanted to return to the the, yes, the, the the one. Since I'm being a little critical of Thomas in this interview, I, I want to make sure I give him full credit. He, uh, I think, the Confederacy had been sort of searching for a battle of Saratoga, you know, using the Revolutionary War precedent. That this total defeat of a Union force and surrender of a Union force that would show that they were viable as a state and as a military power and encourage uh, intervention from a foreign power. And I think they almost got that. At Chickamauga, I think if he hadn't stood his ground, there's no way that the U.S. would have been able to retreat into Chattanooga and, and maintain a defense and eventually get out of it. So I think he, in that sense, he his leadership really does change the course of the war, at least in that one battle. Uh, Grant and Thomas, I think their bad relationship really results from the way Thomas responded to the siege situation at Chattanooga. Grant was you know, Grant is all about let's go, let's go, let's go as quickly as possible. Uh, and Thomas wanted to make sure that they didn't move until they were ready. And really, the two were, you know, somewhere between these two men is the appropriate response, the perfect general. <laughs> Grant mm-hmm. wanted to go a little too fast. He had expectations of the army that were just unrealistic. Uh, he wanted to attack before. If he had attacked as early as he had planned, it really, I think, would have been sort of disastrous. And and Thomas did a good service by slowing him down and having him face reality and logistics and so on. Uh, on the other hand, Thomas was uh, willing to wait quite a long time, longer than Grant would have, to attack. And just politically, I think that was very difficult. It, the administration really wanted to get the army out of Chattanooga. Grant was willing to take some pretty heavy risks that, that Thomas was not willing to take, and he gambled, and, and it, it worked. He, he won. I wonder if if George McClellan had never existed, uh, Grant might have been more tolerant of Thomas's 
insistence on waiting for reinforcements and training mm-hmm. and supplies. Uh, yeah, I mean, the Colin Buell you know, is the same way. There, there certainly were plenty of people who, who waited too long and, and you know, that, but didn't have. I mean, Thomas did act when it was time, and he did take risks. So he wasn't quite a McClellan, but it was easy to see how Grant might label him as sort of a McClellan type of general. Exactly, and and that it, had that not been that bad precedent, he might have let him given him a little more rope to uh, to operate with. Well, after um, Grant goes east and Sherman uh, with Thomas uh, march to Atlanta, then then we have Thomas's independent campaign, the Nashville campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, that leads to the Battle of Nashville, where where Hood's depleted army is outside the city. And Thomas is preparing to attack it, but he's preparing and preparing and preparing. And Grant actually orders him relieved of command at that point, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the orders didn't quite reach him uh, in time. He managed to, to move and start the battle and then eventually win it before the orders for his relief arrived. So uh, when he does launch the attack, uh, some sources portray it as, as the most successful, most devastating open field battle of the Civil War, that Hood's army is completely destroyed. Uh, but you write that, uh, no, everything didn't quite go according to plan. Uh, I think it was successful. I mean, it, it he did succeed in, in defeating Hood's army, and, and I think he did a very good job leading the battle. Um, the, what what I disagree with is some authors say, oh, it's you know he's like a chess master, and everything went according to plan, and everything was just exactly the way he wanted to do, and he, he used this incredible deep strategy to outmaneuver Hood. Well, he had a strategy in mind, but the realities of the battle immediately took over, and it was very difficult for him to get his strategy off the ground. You know, weather problems and people going in the wrong direction and all the usual things that typically happen that, that you know make actually fighting a battle not like fighting a chess game uh, took place. And, and he really scrambled. He spent the entire day riding from place to place, adjusting his plans, pushing people forward, uh, holding people back, and so on. And and really improvised his way to, to victory. So he did have a grand strategic plan, and to a certain extent, the battle that occurred resembled what he had in mind at, at the beginning. But I think his genius in this battle was the fact that he was able to react so quickly to changing circumstances and, and keep the battle going, even though things did not go the way he had in mind. Now, the other thing that you stress about the Battle of Nashville is that Thomas's view based on his lifetime as a slaveholder uh, was that African-Americans were not qualified to be combat troops. And he had uh, USCT regiments in his army, but not because he wanted them, and he used them for labor details. But in Nashville, he did use black troops to fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what he happened then? He tried not to. He, he put them in the most inactive part of his line. Uh, he really didn't have any confidence in the ability of African-American troops to, to fight. Uh, he, he used them, definitely, but he used them as laborers and, you know, guarding the rear and so on. Uh, and, you know, again, you can just see his very, the strength of the racial prejudices that he grew up with. Uh, the, his, one of his commanders, Steedman, uh, was in command of these folks, was supposed to launch a diversionary attack and actually launched a full-scale attack, even though Thomas told him not to do that, uh, and did it on two successive days. Well, after the battle was over, Thomas, you know, during the battle, Thomas really knew nothing about this. His, his attention was directed elsewhere. But after the battle, he rode over the battlefield and just saw how all the bodies of African-American troops, um, you know, piled up right in front of the Confederate breastworks. And 
this told him, wow, these people advanced under heavy fire and kept attacking until they all died. They, they didn't run away. And then actually that's true. Some of the white units broke and ran, but the black units kept attacking. Uh, and this was really a profound experience for him. He, he had heard about African-American troops fighting well in other theaters. I mean, everybody had. It was in all the newspapers. But I think he really had to see it himself uh, for that to overcome all that heritage of prejudice that, that he had. Uh, and to his credit, once he saw the evidence, he really changed his mind about race. And that really is, is uh, uh, a rare quality in any mature individual to change their mind. I asked around degrees. about this. I asked, were there any, you know, I've asked different scholars who I've talked to, can you, do you know of any other examples of Southern Unionists who changed the, you know, their experience of fighting with African-American troops, changed their mind about race? And nobody's been able to find another example. He seems to be unique. No, so there are white Southern Unionists who, who fought in the Union Army and, and were officers and so on, but most of them ended the war with the same you know, racial hatreds that they, they began with. Thomas was almost unique, or perhaps unique, in the fact that he changed. Well, in, in terms of his, his evolution, uh, his personal views, his, his fighting for the Union, despite his Virginia background, uh, in all kinds of ways, he's really a fascinating figure, and uh, the book is a good one uh, that reveals a lot of that, and I know our listeners will enjoy it. Chris, we are out of time, unfortunately, and I apologize for the late start, but thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you so much. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.